Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. This week marks another important point in the war in Ukraine. After Ukraine's highly successful counteroffensive in the north, which allowed Kiev to demonstrate its ability to go on the offensive, to retake territory and seize initiative in the war, Russian President Putin has now sought to turn the tables with two important developments. First, Kremlin proxies in four Ukrainian regions that Russia only partly controls announced plans for sham referenda on annexation to Russia. On Wednesday morning, Putin also announced a partial mobilization in which he plans to bring 300,000 reservists to the fight in Ukraine. This quote-unquote partial mobilization comes in addition to new legislation passed by the country's parliament on Tuesday, imposing criminal penalties on soldiers for desertion, surrender, or refusal to follow orders during mobilization and martial law. So we have a lot of questions to grapple with. You know, how consequential is the mobilization? Will it even matter? How have the risks of escalation changed? What are the threats now to Putin at home? You know, we know, for example, that flights to Turkey and other countries that don't require visas have sold out. And likewise, searches for how can I break my arm have also supposedly spiked as large swaths of Russians will be seeking to avoid being sent to the war. So lots to discuss, and we couldn't have two better guests to help us make sense of this. Welcome Mick Ryan and Rob Lee to the podcast. Thanks, Andrea. It's great to be here. Thanks for having uh, me. Wonderful. Quick bios. Um, Mick Ryan is an adjunct fellow with the Australia Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also a retired Major General in the Australian Army and the author of War Transformed, The Future of 21st Century Great Power Competition and Conflict. And Rob Lee is a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program and a former Marine infantry officer. He's currently completing his PhD on Russian defense policy at King's College London's War Studies Department. Okay, so I thought what we could do is before jumping right into these two uh, announcements and developments is to spend a little time uh, setting the scene and understanding what had been happening in Ukraine, uh, the context in which Putin has, um, you know, kind of desperately sought to take these steps. And so Mick, maybe I can start with you um, to talk to us a little bit about uh, the way the war was progressing prior, you know, if, you know, we stepped back on Monday, where were we in this war? And I am really hoping that you will draw on some of your insights from our a wonderful trip into Ukraine last week. For those of you who don't know, Mick and I got to take part of a group um, organized by PISM um, in Poland uh, that allowed us to head into Ukraine um, for a short time. So um, Mick, over to you and just, just set the scene so we understand kind of what you know Putin was likely responding to with these developments. Sure. Thanks, Andrea. I think to understand the full context of Putin's announcements, um, it's not just emerging from this most recent counteroffensive, you have to go back to the start of the war. And essentially, Putin's strategy was based on some very flawed assumptions around uh, the capacity of the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people to resist, um, the notion of Ukraine not as a sovereign state, and he also assumed the West wouldn't intervene. Um, you might have been able to get one of those assumptions wrong, but he got them all wrong. But 
more tellingly, the military based a lot of its planning off these kind of assumptions, that it would be a quick campaign and therefore its force structure, the quantity of forces deployed and where they deployed um, were based on this, this flawed strategy. And that really is the start point of the Russian army's really flawed campaign in Ukraine. All the way through, the Ukrainians have fought much harder and much smarter than the Russians ever anticipated. They've certainly taken far more casualties than any of the most pessimistic planners would have, um, or most pessimistic intelligence officers might have planned at the start of this. Um, so you roll forward through to the last couple of weeks where you have the Ukrainian campaign in the south well underway. I mean, that campaign's been underway for several months. I mean, this was a slow creeping campaign uh, that really crept up on the Russians and then they, you know, they decided to uh, redeploy multiple battalion tactical groups, whatever those things really mean now, into the south. Um, but the Ukrainian campaign design wasn't complete. Uh, obviously, the second part or another part of the campaign design was an offensive in the north there's some who have suggested the South was a feint. I don't believe that. And during our visit to Ukraine, the J-5, the Ukrainian High Command, confirmed it was not. It was just part of the operational design. And anyone who understands operational art can see that pretty quickly, I think. Um, so the sequencing was the South, then the North, and who knows what might be next in the sequence. But it allowed the Ukrainians to rapidly break into the Russian defences, penetrate them, and then quickly begin a large-scale exploitation in the northeast, uh, which has cut Russian uh, logistic lines. It's really compromised the Russian positions in the northeast and indeed in the east. It is highly likely the Russians uh, won't be able to undertake meaningful offensive operations in the east because they're going to have to redeploy and reorient their forces to cope with this uh, deluge of Ukrainians descending on them from the north. So it was against this context that Putin has had a slow build-up of pressure, I think, over the last seven months to uh, look at um, how he can rotate and reinforce uh, his Ukrainian invasion force, but the last two weeks have made it very clear he's going to have to do something, and this is his response. Rob, you've also um, done some writing on Twitter um, and perhaps in other places laying out your um, logic, your thinking of why the trends over the longer term favor Ukraine, and I wonder if you can just kind of walk us through so the way that you've thought about that, again, kind of setting the context for why Putin does this, I think he likely could read the writing on the wall that if things continue the way that they're going, it doesn't look good um, for Russia. And so can you lay out kind of as you see it, um, the trends, the trend lines uh, prior to Putin's decision? And then we can talk about whether anything he did change that. Um, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think if we take a step back, we look at the overall war and kind of the phases of it. Um, you know, Mick talked about the beginning. He's absolutely right. That, you know, the, the war was based on incredibly unrealistic ex expectations of the level of resistance that Russia would face in Ukraine. Um, very bizarre. Um, one of the things that I, that I want to emphasize is that um, I don't actually think the, the Russian military was the lead planning agency for this war. I think it was the FSB. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things we saw in the first you know, two weeks 
anyone who's sort of the military will look at this and say, you know, what are they doing? They're, you know, Russia's doing all these bizarre things without combined arms, without um, just in, in, violating just every, you know, so many principles of war. Um, and principles of war that the Russian military officers, you know, understand and respect and care about. And they violate all those things. They violate Russian military doctrine. They did all these things that are different. And basically, my, my, you know, my understanding of what happened is that the de decision-making of the concept of the, of the operation, it was, it was made by a very kind of small group of people, by Putin, by the FSB, by other kind of former KGB or FSB officers. Um, you know, these intelligence officers don't have military experience. They don't understand necessarily that if you do a large-scale conventional war, you have to give conventional units, you know, time to prepare for them. There's a lot of things go go into, you know, how, how wars kind of succeed. And they didn't do any of that. And it was kept very close to the vest. And that's why we saw a lot of the initial failures. And I also think it's why the, the strategy was so bizarre, that it, vi it violated so many principles of war. It, it deviated from Russian military doctrine, all these kind of things that I thought we'd see, because, you know, based on looking at Russian doctrine, exercises, how they fought previously, they did the opposite in a lot of regards. So, the first phase of the war, because it was such a bad strategy, the, the Russian military took very heavy casualties, and they took more casualties than they, they, they should have otherwise if they conducted just a you know, competent combined arms operation. Um, they lost a lot of equipment they just abandoned because you know, it wasn't well-maintained. They didn't you know, plan out maintenance ahead of time to say, okay, we have to have our vehicles ready for this time. All these kind of factors into it. And so after the first month, um, the Russian military, the, the pre-February 24th military, was very different than what we saw afterwards. And I think one thing I, I want to emphasize too is that when we talk about the, the what you know the, the force that's fighting in Ru for Russia right now, it is majority of the force is not professional Russian military at this point. It's a mix of different kind of amalgam of volunteers, reservists, private military companies, et cetera. And you get you know kind of variance in quality for variety reasons. So after the first phase fails, um, and Putin was kind of slow to kind of understand that it was failing. And that the the goals he tried to achieve, uh, you know, way too ambitious, and and you know, there's no way, there's no reason to suspect that he would have been able, Russia would have been able to occupy the entire country, conduct regime change, all those things. When we get into the kind of the next phase, when they started focusing on Donbas, ever since then, there's been a really clear disconnect between Russia's kind of strategic goals and and how they achieve them, and basically, how does how does the war end on Russia's terms? And it's never been clear really since April how that happens, because even if the stated goal of taking back the Donbass, you know, even if they do that, Ukraine's not going to give up the war and they're not in a position to force Ukraine to give up the war at that point. And so it, it, there's been no, you know, really coherent strategy, at least since then, even if the beginning, which wasn't very strategically well done either. And so we saw in the Battle of Donbass, um, instead of kind of Russia thinking, OK, here are the resources we have. Here's how we should use them to achieve a strategic goal. Instead, it became, we need to show some success. We need to take these towns and we're going to throw um, whatever manpower we can to do so as, as quickly as possible to kind of show some kind of success. And the problem with that was that, you know, after looking at the offensive in, in Kharkiv, is that I think it was largely a Pyrrhic victory. So the success they had in, in June, they used a lot of artillery. They used a lot of manpower. Um, and they're using, you know, they're burning through guys. It was volunteers. The, the initial invasion force, it was something about 80% of Russia's kind of permanent readiness units took part in the initial invasion. That meant that they had no reserve if things went wrong. Things went wrong. They deployed additional BDGs. But basically, it was at the first phase, it became, okay, Russia only can fight if they rely heavily on non-professional units. Um, that included mobilizing the occupied areas of, of Luhansk and Donetsk. 
volunteers, Wagner, all these other kind of, you know, amalgam of things to kind of get guys to fight. And um, if Russia had been smart about this, right, they would have kind of foreseen, okay, you know, a very costly and slow offense in the Donbass doesn't achieve that much strategically for us, but that's what they attempted. And then if we look at kind of phases, the initial phase of that operation went quite poorly in April and May. In, May. In, in late May to June, Russia was kind of able to leverage the superior amount of artillery fire as well as kind of manpower to have some success. Um, and then when, uh, when HIMARS arrived, that basically was, was one of the big ways that, that reduced Russia's advantage in artillery because they could hit ammo depots, they could target other kind of command and control. They made it much more difficult for Russia to keep doing offensive operations. And so ever since basically the beginning of July, when, when the last kind of areas of Hansk were taken by Russia, um, Russia hasn't been able to advance much. And it was pretty clear they probably reached a culminating point where they didn't have the manpower resources to advance that much farther. And then it's always been a question since then. Okay, we, we know Ukraine wants to, you know, to, to, to counterattack. It was always a question, at least to me, what, what kind of reserves do they have? We know they mobilize a lot of people, but you know, it, it's a difference between having units that are mobilized and units that are trained, equipped, um, you know, have morale and things of that nature that become more effective and important. And that's something that's relevant when we talk about Russian mobilization. Um, and basically, you know, what we saw, and I, I did an interview right before the, the Kharkiv offensive, um, and basically my view is, you know, I, I wasn't sure exactly how, how things would go. I thought the Ukraine had a number of advantages over the medium term, wasn't sure how that would kind of translate into to success on the battlefields. But things that we saw, you know, it's pretty clear that because Ukraine was able to do an offensive in Kherson, Kharkiv at the same time, um, they have a manpower advantage. That's pretty clear. I think Russia's responding to that right now. Um, they clearly have an advantage in morale. They have a, a, a clear advantage in having much clearer strategic goals, um, leadership um, at all levels, right? political leadership, military leadership at, at the tactical strategic level, better on, uh, at, at, um, by Ukraine by far, the better learning lessons, um, better, they, they have better precision fires at this point, um, better ability to strike behind Russian lines. Russia has to devote units to, to occupy these kind of towns. Ukraine doesn't do that. So the variety of kind of factors and how that translates into success, you know, where is always hard to say. But when you look at kind of medium long term, um, you know, I'm, I was bullish before defensive. There were good reasons to think Ukraine had success. We've seen enough things to say, OK, Ukraine should have more success than Russia at this point. And it was pretty clear um, after the Kharkiv offensive that basically Russia had to do something, some kind of policy change. Otherwise, there's a significant risk that um, Ukraine was going to start taking, you know, parts of Luhansk back, Zaporizhia, other areas. And it could be something almost catastrophic if there wasn't some kind of Russian response. I think that's what we're seeing today. I know Jim wants to jump in, but I just want to let Nick also speak to this question because I also think we learned some things on our trip that I, you know, that contribute to this picture that the long run, in the long run, trends are favoring Ukraine. So anything, I mean, that was great, Rob, and that's exactly you know what I was talking about. You've had some great. Um, tweets and information kind of laying and making that case why trends favor Ukraine. But Mick, do you want to add anything to that or kind of your your perspective on how you see that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Clausewitz talked about this, that war is a clash of wills, and we're seeing that play out here. I mean, Ukrainian will is clearly, clearly more powerful and more committed than the Russians are. Um, and the only way you can really address that asymmetry is by throwing huge masses of resources against the Ukrainians, and the Russians haven't done that. You know, an invasion force of 200,000 people against a, a military that has over that, you know, the maths don't work. It was professionally inept. 
And I note that a lot of the planning was done by the intelligence staff and, you know, you should never let that happen because they did the same in 2014 and it didn't work out well. Um, so, you know, I think this ultimately is a clash of wills. The Ukrainians in Kiev are all convinced they're going to win. I, I happen to agree with them um, because for them this is an existential fight and for the Russians it's some expeditionary uh, adventure where they can pillage, murder and rape their way through rebellious Russians as they're taught these people are or Nazis. That's not a recipe for success and they're being poorly led and poorly supported in that. So it's very difficult to see a pathway to victory for the Russians in the medium or long term. And in the short term, they're kind of out of schlitz, right? I mean, victory in Luhansk was the last gasp of a Russian army's offensive capacity. They're really just hanging on for grim life at the moment. Well, thank you all very much. I uh, First of all, I want to make sure our listeners know that you two are the top uh, analysts on uh, dealing with what's going on there with Ukraine, Russia, and I really urge our uh, listeners to uh, to follow you on Twitter. It's uh, it's really an education, and uh, I appreciate you all appearing on on uh, Brussels sprouts. Let me ask you, uh, what do you think uh, if in, in uh, Kiev right now with the planners? They're they're hearing uh, what this new uh, these new laws are. And they need to very quickly begin to deal with uh, the ramifications of those. Uh, so if you are, if, you know, they've had the breakthrough up, uh, up there in the Kharkiv area, um, if they know that there's a tidal wave coming down at some point, um, you know, the Russians might decide to, to forego a lot of training. Uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're going to put, they're going to bring in the new forces to substitute for the more uh, experienced forces that might be then sent down, or maybe these New forces are sent. I don't know, but it might very well be there's shortcuts are going to happen uh, in the Russian planning to get these forces down there one way or another. Uh, and this tidal wave is going to come sooner rather than later. Try out what are we going to deal with here? When will this tidal wave hit? What do you think uh, the Ukraine military needs to be doing right now? They certainly, they're, we're approaching winter, uh, and so that's going to impact operations. But uh, They've got to. They've got to do something uh, to prepare for this tidal wave. What do you think they would do? Um, firstly, I think they're prepared for this. Um, this is a highly competent uh, military organisation that clearly wargamed this war in advance. It's had an effective strategy to beat the Russians uh, on the battlefield and in their minds and in Moscow and in. Uh, you know, the citizenry around the world that watches this through, through the entire eight months. They will have war game this. They would have been expecting this. Um, so they know that they have a window of opportunity um, to exploit Russian weakness at the moment. I, I don't think we're going to see a tidal wave of Russians coming into Ukraine. Um, given, given the amount of settlements they have to occupy, the 1,000-kilometre front line, um, you know, the amount of things that these troops will have to do really only allows them to reinforce and replace existing forces. Even with the stop loss that was in this order, uh, most of those subject to stop loss are exhausted. They've been there for eight months. They're not combat effective. So I don't think we're going to see a tidal wave. We're going to see a slow but steady reinforcement and replacement of Russians over the coming months. 
that is going to take time. I mean, it is not going to happen tomorrow or next week, uh, potentially not even next month. My sense is the Ukrainians have at least one more offensive in them before the, um, before the snows start. Rains will make it difficult from next month. But my sense is they probably have one more offensive left before the end of the year. Um, and they will seek to both destroy as much of the Russian army as it can, but more importantly, shock them and say to Western publics, listen, you know, they can uh, mobilise all they want. We're still fighting. We're still going to win. And all it does is up the cost of our victory. It doesn't change the eventual outcome. That, that's the Ukrainian messaging that we will see in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, let's break down maybe to dig into the kind of two big things, the developments of the last couple of days. Rob, so let's maybe if we talk about the mobilization or the so-called partial mobilization, um, can you help us understand kind of what's entailed in that and your assessment of how much impact that will have or not on the course of the war? Sure. So um, th there are a lot of unknowns right now. So I guess it's one thing to emphasize is that, um, you know, Putin and Shoigu both talked today. They both called it a partial mobilization. The actual order itself doesn't say partial. And so mm -hmm. the legal setting is much broader. And so there's a big question about it. And, and Shoigu when he, and also Putin, when they talked about it, they said that they're only going to right now um, mobilize reservists who served in the military, um, who I think who have combat experience. I think were contract soldiers. I mean, I might be wrong on one of those, which is a quite small pool, right? Because, okay, you, you can include anyone that's kind of serious a combat veteran, even though most of them didn't fight. But it, the, the real question is, how do they apply this? Um, and so is it actually going to be partial? Is it, is it going to be very narrowly focused or is it going to be broader? Maybe it starts in a, in a partial way and then expands if they have increasing issues. Um, so in a lot of ways, there, I have more questions than answers, I'd say right now. Well, a couple of things we can, we, we can say from this. So it's a very risky decision politically for Putin. Um, you know, I said this yesterday. Is a question to me was you know what what's the riskier thing politically for him mobilization use use of tactical nuke weapons or losing you know much of the occupied areas in Ukraine right because I think those are three kind of big options that he had available obviously he's going with mobilization at least the stepping stone to, to try and forestall a third option um, and, I, and I do think Ukraine had good prospects to take back um, you know more of of territory before the winter as well. And you know, I think Russia had to kind of do something. So it's, it's not fully clear about that. I think the, there's some short-term effects that might be useful. So one is we've seen that a lot of Russian units is about a 20 to 40% um, refused neck rate where officers, soldiers, who are contract soldiers, not, not conscripts, who, who maybe fought and said, you know, I'm not fighting anymore. You can't force me to go. And before this, basically the Russian military was, they tried to coerce them in a number of different ways and shame them, but they weren't, you know, putting them in jail. Right. There wasn't the kind of criminal liabilities. Well, this probably has changed now. Um, are they willing to put, you know, thousands of people in jail? Probably not, but they probably hope they can put one or two in jail and that's mm -hmm. enough to coerce other people to serve. So one of it is if you can get these guys who are serving members who are you know trained to go fight, that'll, that right away is a boost in manpower. Um, you can deploy conscripts. Shoigu is a bit unclear about that today, but Shoigu also is not a very reliable kind of interlocutor on things. So he throws around figures that are often wrong. Um, so he said that was gonna happen, but if they legally say all these areas of Ukraine are now Russia, then conscripts legally could be deployed because that was the, the initial issue. 
But of course, are they gonna do it? I don't know. Um, in terms of conscripts, Russian regiments, brigades, they, they think we have three battalions. Two are supposed to be made of only con contract soldiers. We know that that wasn't fully true, but that's that was supposed to be the case. The third is supposed to have conscripts with officers and, and NCOs who are contract soldiers. Um, not clear if those battalions are still around, right? It seems as though they pulled every officer, NCO, all the equipment they could to, to keep this fight going. So they have cohesive units, not clear, but you could take conscripts and you could plug them in as combat replacements into existing battalions that are very under strength. And then right away you have a manpower increase, right? There are obviously issues because they're not well-trained guys, not gonna be very motivated, a variety of other issues, but you know, it, it is a short-term way of stemming the, the, the failures and issues that they have right now. So those are two of them. And then if you start, you know, if you, uh, the stop loss program is, uh, it's, it's, these are not necessarily well-trained people. A lot of kind of the, the way Russia responds to manpower issues in the beginning, right? They had, they, you know, the initial part of the war was fought by professional units. They took heavy attrition. Then Russia had to kind of rely on other, other air, like avenues. Some of that was kind of these new reserve units they formed, which aren't very, you know, well-constituted. Some was, Wagner or, you know, other kind of volunteer units, a lot of the volunteers who signed contracts in spring, they signed three or six month contracts and they got maybe a day or two of training and then they went to fight. Right. So they're not well-trained units at all. Those guys are now being, um, you know, stop loss to stay in service until this kind of mobilization order is, goes away. Um, and that's true for other units. They just deploy as well. That got maybe a little more training. So, but there are big questions here because if you do a mobilization, um, the way that the Russian military operates, there isn't a centralized training location for enlisted troops like we have in, in most Western militaries. They're supposed to be trained at their units. And so every, every fall and spring, they draft a certain number of people, conscripts, rev units. They are trained at those units. And then a certain number of them sign contracts, become contract soldiers. Well, that entire process is broken down because the Russian military is not designed for a long-term war. Um, and it's, it's actually a much worse state to do so than, than most Western militaries. And so they, don't, they didn't have those reservists. And then now anyone, you know, all the conscripts who got called up in the spring, they're not getting much training. The ones who get, you know, called them in the fall are not going to get much training either. And if you deploy them, right, a lot of them are not going to want to sign contracts, all these other kind of host of issues. So a lot of issues, a lot of issues about if you mobilize reservists, right, if it's only it's a narrow group, that's not a huge manpower pool. If you expand it, it's bigger, but who trains them, who leads them, who, you know, how are they equipped, right? Not to mention just... Increasingly, with this war, uh, you've got a, a huge difference in morale and motivation. Ukrainians, right, all of them want to fight. They're all doing this voluntarily. They have no shortage of, of Ukrainians who want to fight. And I mean, there, there are always stories of guys who had never served in the military, started fighting in February 24th, and are now just, you know, completely committed to the cause no matter what. On the Russian side, right, they are stop losses. It's, it's always involuntary methods of forcing people to fight who do not want to be there. And a lot of these areas of Ukraine, right, Kherson, Zaporizhia, right? Are those culturally that significant to Russia? Like, not really. And so does anyone, do any of these guys want to be sitting in a trench in January defending an area they don't necessarily, it doesn't have much kind of resonance to them? Not really. And so the reason we're seeing a mobilization program is that a lot of these kind of manpower issues were clearly going to be um, a bigger problem come the winter. All these short-term contracts, guys were not going to resign contracts. Um, and then, you know, they, they already recruited the most desperate people financially, the most ideologically supportive volunteers. There wasn't a good idea of what comes next without kind of state, you know, forcing people to do so. So I think that in the short term, the, the, they might have some success to stem the kind of, you know, to, to, to solidify the lines for the, for the foreseeable future. 
this might be a way of solidifying their, their, um, their numbers for the winter, but there are going to be a lot of long-term problems and a lot of, you know, long-term questions about how does this work? You know, what, what kind of domestic risks does this create? And of course, Ukraine has all these advantages because their morale is still there. They still have a large manpower. They're getting tra- you know, much better training in the UK than anything the Russian troops are getting. And so all those advantages still remain with Ukraine. Maybe this prolongs the war a little bit, right? And Ukraine can't take tech territory in the near future. But you know, over the long term, there, there are a host of reasons to think that um, you know, to be optimistic on Ukraine's behalf. And you know, it, I didn't mention before, but the Kharkiv offensive was just an extremely impressive operation. Um, and it demonstrated too that you know, Ukraine can do um, implement a, a very impressive operational kind of art uh, and operation, well executed tactically at different levels, very impressive combined arms, all that signals that they can do this again in the future. And you know, if they, if they find a weak point of line, Russian lines, you know, it, another that they could find another kind of place to collapse as well. So a lot of reasons to be bullish for Ukraine. This probably is more of a short-term effect than a long-term effect. And again, this could hasten, you know, sh- you know, domestic upheaval in Russia as well. So you know, it, it, it it's possible mobilization leads to a collapse even even sooner. But you know, it's it's a lot of big unknowns right now. That's really helpful, um, Mick. I want you to, if you want to add anything to that. But kind of the big question is whether or not this is entirely designed to kind of stop Ukrainian advance advances uh, to kind of stem the momentum that the Ukrainians have? Or is there anything in this mobilization <clears throat> that leads you to believe that at some point Russia would have enough capability and manpower to go back on the offensive? And I guess, you know, what I'm getting at with my question is this mobilization in conjunction with these sham referenda on annexing these territories is this just Russia really digging in and that we are seeing kind of the solidification of a new line that Russia now is going to try to defend such that we're going to see this prolonged kind of borderland war for a long time? Or, or I, mean, I, I, I guess that's the question. Is that what you think is behind this, that they're kind of hunkering down, holding the line, and that then it's going to be even harder for Ukrainian forces to permeate this new increasingly well-defended line? Well, I don't think we're going to see much as a result of this mobilisation over the next month. I mean, these kind of things take time to ramp up and it will not be an even ramping up. You know, every as Rob made clear, units and, and formations are responsible for training people. That's not going to happen all at exactly the same pace. Um, and they'll be probably uh, ringing their bosses at the moment going, hey, what the heck is going on at the moment? They won't know what's going on. So this this isn't going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in the next week or even in the next month. So there's still a lot of opportunity here for the Ukrainians. There is no prospect of the Russians forming some large new formations that are capable of uh, offensives at the moment. I, I just don't see that prospect. Um you know, uh, from a defensive point of view, it's a lot easier to prepare soldiers. The Ukrainian Territorial Defence Force did this really well, uh, continues to do it pretty well, uh, but they're also motivated, whereas the Russians aren't. So I think this is just as much a strategic ploy by Putin to draw out the war to continue what he thinks is test the patience of the West in supporting Ukraine Um, It's not working well for him so far. NATO and its members have been far more resilient than he expected and probably many of the other rest of us expected. His energy warfare is absolutely not working for him. 
Um, almost all of Europe has banded together to not let it happen. And now his customers that are buying it are insisting on deep discounts because they know they're in the best position to buy energy they'll, they'll ever be. He's in a real bind. Um, and the West has proved to be far more resilient. Um, he's playing for time to hope that uh, the West kind of throws up its arms that, oh, well, you know, the Russians are more committed than we are. That is not the case. Finally, I'd just say that, you know, I think Putin took messages away from his meeting from Modi and Xi uh, that weren't what a lot of Western commentators, a lot of people focused on Modi and Xi kind of said, well, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Putin took away that he can't afford to lose now because his position relative to China and India will be even worse than what it was before this war. So, you know, I think this is as much a strategic ploy for Putin about sustaining uh, the position of, of Russia in, in the world order. It's about trying to undermine Western confidence and patience with supporting Ukraine as much as it is about reinforcing and replacing uh, Russian troops. Thank you for that. I, I have a, a question um, in terms of what the, the U.S. thinking should be right now. If uh, if you're in the White House, if you're in the, on the NSC staff uh, and you're trying to think, OK, what should the West do in response? Uh, of course, um, uh, you would think, well, we for, for sure, we've already doubled down. I mean, you, you see over the past couple of months in the assistance we've been giving Ukraine, the long-term assistance, cold weather gear, things like that. Uh, and what we've been saying is that we're in this for the long haul. And so now we see what Russia is doing. So what's the response uh, in terms of the West in supporting Zelensky and Ukraine uh, in terms of military types of things? Do we, uh, I mean, you said that you don't expect this to be a tidal wave. Um, uh, which I hope is true. I hope that's really true. But is there some moves now that the West needs to make in terms of support for Ukraine? Um, uh, do we pick up and send more or different kinds of equipment? Uh, I was going to say more high bars, but maybe that's not it. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's more training, uh, uh, you know, larger amounts of training. But maybe it's, uh, it's, it's other moves that we haven't done in the West in the past because the situation didn't call for it. But now with these announcements and what the announcements could mean, we need to begin to change a little bit of the support, either in terms of the amount or the type. What should the move be uh, by the West in response to this? Well, the great thing about this is there is absolutely no mystery about what the Ukrainians want and need. I mean, we don't have to second guess them. They tell us constantly and they're consistent with their messaging. So let me tell you what. Uh, everyone we spoke to from the president on down has asked for, first and foremost, air defence to close the skies. Uh, and the rationale for this is, one, to protect his people because he actually cares about his citizens, unlike uh, Putin. But he also knows that this is a strategic endeavour to ensure that Western companies have confidence to come into the country and invest. He needs foreign investment. So that's his priority one. His next priority is tanks and armoured fighting vehicles. Um, we should be in no doubt that further Ukrainian offensives require a huge number of mobile systems, tanks, armoured fighting vehicles, mobile logistics, mobile command and control, air defence, artillery, to succeed. Now, we're running out of useful Soviet-era 
systems to do this. I mean, just about all the modernised T-72s and other tanks have been provided. We are going to have to provide M1s or Leopards or both in the, you know, in the short to medium term for these guys. Now, that's difficult. I know I've commanded a brigade with M1s. They're very difficult to sustain. I get all that. But the Ukrainians have demonstrated an amazing capacity to absorb advanced systems extraordinarily quickly. I mean, they put harms on MiG-29s, which theoretically should have been impossible. Um, we need to give them this stuff and we need to give it to them really, really quickly because they have an opportunity to build up over winter to launch some more offensives early next year. Um, another priority for them is UAVs plus counter UAV technologies. So, you know, I'm getting a little tired of Western governments saying, oh, what do they need? It's like, we know what they need. Don't second guess what they need. Don't second guess their capacity to use it. They are the most experienced modern military in the world, bar none, who understand modern warfare better than any military in the world, bar none. Let's defer to their expertise and their requests and get it to them in the coming months. Uh, I want to come back to the economic question in a minute because you know the, the, we're, if we're talking about a protracted war, there's lots of concerns um, about Ukraine's economy and its ability, you know, to not collapse and the longevity. But before we do that, the looming question I think that's associated, and it gets at Jim's question about Western responses the looming question about now a heightened risk of escalation. And obviously in Putin's speech, there was all sorts of not so veiled uh, nuclear threats. Um, people talking about the annexation of these territories would now kind of make it, you know, it, it would now be consistent with Russia's nuclear doctrine that they could use a nuclear weapon uh, if there is a, you know, if the, the, the homeland is um, under threat. Putin in his speech also um, used language that seemed to broaden the use of the potential use of nuclear weapons where he talked about, he used very loosely defined terms like territorial integrity and freedom and sovereignty. And so um, Rob, I wanna talk to you about how, whether or not you see now a heightened risk of escalation um, and how you think again to the Jim's question about how the West should respond um, how you are thinking about managing this potentially now heightened threat of nuclear escalation. Sure. So I'm not um, much of a nuclear guy, so so I'm not as good at, at looking at Russian doctrine on that. What I'd say is, um, we, you know, we saw today that he is escalating because, you know, as I said before, there's kind of three options roughly, right? He could either respond by some kind of mobilization to make up for manpower deficit, Um respond with tactical nuclear weapons, or, you know, basically respond with losing more of the areas they occupy in Ukraine, right? because that, that that's, you know, where the course is going. Ukraine is going to take more territory back. Uh, he decided that a, a mobilization of some sort was preferable, and there are significant domestic risks for him to do so, right? The domestic risks for all these options. So, you know, it, but he clearly thinks that some form of mobilization um, was a better option than losing more parts of Ukraine. I think one thing to emphasize is that, you know, we talk about territory there, there's kind of three things we're talking about. One is we're talking about areas that Russia has occupied since February 24th. Um, two, we're talking about maybe the Donbass areas that were that Russia occupied before February, February 24th. And three, talking about Crimea, right? The, the way Russia may view those areas might be different and, and their escalatory response might be different in those different cases. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the threshold is for 
for whether they use nuclear weapons. Um, but uh, it's very clear that he, he, he clearly sees there's a domestic threat to him if he loses this war. This decision today clearly indicates he knows that Russia was losing, that a policy change had to happen. Um, I suspect that the mobilization effort, there might be some short-term success in solidifying the line. Long-term, I don't think it's going to solve the issue. And so again, it comes to, okay, if this step fails, how does he respond in the future? I think initially we're going to see some kind of form of partial mobilization. He might expand that going forward. The more it gets expanded, of course, it comes to the question of, you know, is there a greater domestic risk at that point? Um, you know, it, the other problem, problem is just that, it, it, you know, looking at this war, I, I thought Russia was going to invade, but the way they did it was in a very different way I, I expected. And they did it with such a um, unrealistic view of Ukraine and what would happen and everything that it really shows that Putin is, is, is in, a, in an incredible bubble and the intelligence he receives, it's pretty clear he's designed it in a way that he wants to hear, he wants to have positive reinforcement. So he's not going to get negative information. He's probably, you know, listening to, to Russian TV. He's not necessarily getting a proper understanding of, uh, you know, what Ukraine thinks, what NATO thinks of the situation outside Russia. And so all of that makes it very difficult to predict what he'll do because, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what information he's getting. And of course, you know, his personal view of his survival is different necessarily than what's best for Russia as a whole. So all these things are kind of different factors. Um, but again, you know, it was always a question, what happens when Ukraine starts pushing back on Russia? Kharkiv was not the biggest, you know, it was obviously a huge success for Ukraine. Russia tried to kind of say, okay, it's part of our operation. Well, he can't say that once they start taking back areas of Luhansk, right, which they are opposed to do. Um, he can't do that when, when they start pushing back in other areas. And so that's why the decision was made now. Uh, but ultimately, I don't know, but I suspect he's not, he's going to try and escalate in some regard. And, you know, I think it's a very dangerous phase. Um, but of course, you know, the, the idea that you could occupy part of another country and then say, now this falls under a nuclear umbrella, you have to respect it, is, you know, it's a ridiculous kind of thing. It's probably unprecedented. I'm not sure. I have to look back. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really kind of forceful idea. I, I, I very much doubt that they would, they would kind of use a nuclear umbrella to defend Zaporizhia or Kherson. Um, Crimea might be a different scenario. I don't know. But um, again, the, the, the best prospects here in this war is that Ukraine has more success. That we continue to give them the kind of weapons and other kind of forms of support so they can, they can keep having more, more success and that there's some kind of you know, negotiated settlement in which Ukraine can dictate the terms, right? And that's, I think, that's the best situation where, where they can kind of dictate the terms and they're in a strong position to do so. And that's, you know, the, 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 I think the way kind of when we look at the NATO, NATO support should be, um, you know, ultimately it comes down to Ukraine dictates what success looks like. They, they had the prospects for success and we can keep supporting in that regard. We almost will end on a positive note, except I do really want to hear, Mick, from you on kind of how you're thinking about the, this illegal annexation. I mean, it again, Rob, you said earlier, there's lots more questions and answers at this point. And it, I mean, it, it is farcical that they would extend a nuclear umbrella to territories that they don't even fully control. I mean, what does that look like? What does that mean? And so, I don't know, just your thoughts, Mick, on kind of what this means for the potential for escalation, um, and even how you think maybe the West will respond, whether this will effectively um, instill more caution in some uh, Western capitals, or you know whether 
you know, you, you see the, the West calling Putin's bluff on this, and maybe not to say, I don't mean to belittle it to say call his bluff, but whether or not we should be undeterred by what we think Putin is trying to accomplish with this, with this uh, announcement. Well, I, I think it's hard to imagine most Western capitals being more cautious than what they've been so far. I mean, every time, you know, someone says, oh, we don't want to, don't want to um, escalate this, uh, Putin does something to, you know, say, oh, don't escalate. I mean, it's, it's slightly ludicrous in how we've been deterring ourselves. As Ben Hodges says, you know, we're being treed by a chihuahua in many respects. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take, you know, rattling the nuclear sabre seriously. And as Michael Kaufman, you know, explores a lot of his work, this is how the Russians work. They escalate, de-escalate quickly with these things. Um, you know, I, I take it seriously, but I think it's extraordinarily unlikely. They never use nuclear weapons in Afghanistan, even when things are in their worst. The US never used nuclear weapons in Vietnam, even when things are at their worst. I mean, the reality is superpowers probably understand better than any the implications of the use of one nuclear weapon. They understand through their deterrence theories that have been developed over many decades that you can't just stop at one. It's like M&Ms, right? You, once you start, you can't stop. And um, even the Russians are serious enough to understand that uh, losing a few hundred thousand people in Ukraine is nowhere near as serious as losing a few million Russians on their homeland if this got out of control. And we know things get out of control. You know, people will make emotional quick decisions if there is a nuclear weapon used, and frankly, things will get out of control. So even they, I think, are reticent to begin that process. So, uh, you know, like Rob says, there's a lot of unknowns here, but, you know, we, we have a lot of deterrence theory. There's a lot of capability to bring transparency to Russian moves around this, around their nuclear capability. That's really important. Um, we need to go back and have a look at how we deterred Soviet use of nuclear weapons in the past um, and apply that again. Uh, but, you know, once again, we shouldn't be treed by the Chihuahua in this. We need to beat the Russians and they need to know they're beaten at the end of this. Yeah, I think the other thing we heard on our trip to Mick was that idea kind of to the person, and I think you said this before, is that um, Putin's use of nuclear weapons wouldn't deter the Ukrainians. It wouldn't change the outcome, and it wouldn't change how they fight. It would only increase the cost they have to incur to get there. And, and yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know both of you have very busy days responding to all of the news, so maybe we'll wrap there. I think this has been incredibly helpful. Um, it feels like a lot has happened in the last kind of 36 hours, so really useful to hear from both of you how you're thinking about it. Yes, there are a lot of questions that we don't know, but at least this is a good first start in helping us all make sense of, of what's happening. So thank you both, um, and I hope that we can do it again sometime soon. Thanks, Thanks Andrea. So yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And I would uh, urge our listeners to follow you all on Twitter uh, to keep keep abreast of what's going on. It's it's uh, you all do quite a public service. So thank you for appearing on our show and all that you do. Absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.